Welcome to Working on Wellbeing, where we share stories of purpose-driven people doing good in the world. We'll meet change agents, entrepreneurs, students, teachers, and big thinkers to learn about their wow moment and how it got them to where they are today. This show is brought to you by Salary Finance, and I'm your host, Anita Ward, cultural anthropologist and chief development officer at Salary Finance. Hi, welcome everybody. Today our show is live from Hollywood. Oh my God, I've been dying to say that live from Hollywood with one of the smartest people I know, Miss Jody Smith, and one of the only people I know who operates equally from both sides of her brain. So this is going to be fun. And it's also going to be, uh, I'll give you a little hint. It'll be a little bit of behind the scenes conversation today. So, hey, Jody, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you. This is going to be fun. Uh, so everybody, Jody and I have worked together for more than <clears throat> 20 years at, in many different iterations of our careers. So I think we were first co-workers at Chase. And then management and technology consultants and professional services, and then nonprofit leaders driving, you know, change in underserved communities, and then mentors to women entrepreneurs. And it's been a fun, crazy roller coaster. And we have been, you know, like sisters side by side through all of this. It's great fun. But Jody, you're so much more interesting than me because you're this crazy kind of cool conundrum, if you will. I know you won't tell everybody, so I'm going to brag for two minutes on you. So everyone, Jody's got an MBA, but she's also a creative director. She's a television and movie executive producer. She's a screenwriter. She's Emmy nominated. God, just say that again. She's Emmy nominated. She created a cartoon. She's a technology leader. She's a business mentor. And, you know, just like a really good human being. But, but most importantly, she lives in L.A. And she saw my nephew, Trey, perform in Hamilton. The show opening weekend with the L.A. cast. And he was Hamilton. So I can't tell you, Jody, I'm so happy that your industry, entertainment and theater and Broadway are back after an insane 2020. And I'm super jealous that, you know, COVID kept me here in Atlanta. But welcome to the show. I thank you so much for doing this. But yeah. How was Hamilton? Should we give like a shout out to Lin-Manuel and the LA Cat? My gosh, listen, there are some people in this world that deserve to be rich. Lin-Manuel is one of those people. I, you know, I heard all the hype about Hamilton and, you know, I, I love Broadway musicals. I love plays more, but um, I've been going since I was a kid and I, but this one, I was like, okay. I don't know. It's history. Yeah. The whole premise, I'm like, "Mm, okay, you know, I'm going to miss that one. Uh, But, you know, I couldn't miss Trey, right? Knowing him since he was a little baby, you know, that he's going to be Hamilton. So I go and it's amazing. I walked out and I was like, oh, I could see that again, actually. Like I did again. You have to see. Yeah. Yeah. But the levels of creativity of Lin-Manuel are just mind blowing, you know, to take that 
dry, sort of dry story and really find like, wait a minute, this is actually really fascinating. And so many of the themes that were going on at the start of our country are now still going on, you know, to this day, you know, and then to have that inspiration to make the cast mostly people of color and then to have this packed audience, because it was packed, right? It was full, no social distancing. Everybody was vaccinated and wearing masks, but the audience was full to the rafters. And to have, yeah, and it's, you know, it's mostly not people of color, right, in the audience. But to have that inspiration and stick to that vision and say, no, no, it will work and keep going is amazing. And I also wanted to say a shout out, I don't know who they are, to the first angel investor who heard this pitch and was like, okay, I mean, all right, it could work. Because <laughs> I can book and I think he's famous historically. So this could work. This could, that could work. You know, so whatever that first money was, you know, shout out to you because that's vision. I love how you tie Lin-Manuel back to he deserves to be wealthy and shout out to the angel investors. We are talking about theater, which is why I am so excited to have you on this show, because that's just how your brain operates. So like, like OK, we're going to start at the beginning, though, because speaking of children, right, and and Trey and Tommy, like I love to start this show with personal stories. So I thought maybe we could start with your early childhood and, you know, what, what are the lessons that shaped you and your purpose, but where did you grow up and what was that like in your early years? Yeah, I grew up in the Bronx and um, born and raised. And um, my parents are actually immigrants from Jamaica and uh, they came over in the late sixties. Yeah. They came over in the late mid to late sixties. And uh, my mom was a nurse And my dad ended up working on Wall Street by happenstance. He's actually like a trained agricultural person. Um, That's what he has his degree in and genetics of plants and stuff. So that was the least. So he's, I think, you know, talking about somebody who operates from their left and right brain, like he's that guy. He, you know, he works on Wall Street and, you know, deals or he did. Um, in numbers all day. Yeah, but he can splice together two plants and make a new plant. Like he knows how to do that. He can, you know, he can look at a painting and draw it and, and recreate it. Yeah. And or hear a piece of music and play it, but he can't read music. So he was one of those kind of people. And then, you know, my mom was the nurse who was giving 100% all day, you know, and her patients loved her and, you know, her coworkers loved her. And so you have these two different kind of forces in the house. You know, we have one brother, older brother. They had to have those two forces going in the house And they grew up where education was all important, right? And that was the key to freedom. Um, And it's a very sort of from West Indian culture, that's it, right? You, it's really acceptable to be a doctor, nurse, lawyer, you know, that sort of thing. And anything kind of outside of that was viewed as folly, 
you know, you're being ridiculous if you want to do anything kind of other than the standard things that people kind of understand. And, um, you know, but that kind of didn't stop us as kids because my brother, he always wanted to be a pilot. And he was that kid, uh, you know, I'm at a certain age, but they used to let children go up into the cockpit. Like once the plane was up in the air and you could go in the cockpit. I remember. Well, that was my brother. So my brother was the kid who was waiting patiently in his seat until the right time. And every flight he was up there for the whole flight, for the whole rest of the flight, right? Talking to them and a million questions. And, um, you know, so education was everything. Um, And that was what was drilled into our heads was that you can do anything, you can have anything you want, but you have to have that educational base first. So I'm going to until I saw the LinkedIn account and for some reason thought I need to prep on Jody like I don't know you. But I had no idea you attended the High School of Science in the Bronx. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so now I'm, this is starting to paint a much fuller picture in terms of science and art and caregiving. And, you know, I haven't seen you splice the DNA of a plant, but next time you're in Atlanta, I will make sure that you do that for me. But, you know, when you smash all of that together, you're kind of steam in a box, right? It's not just about the stem side and it's the importance as well. Did did that come through because culturally, you know, bringing sort of that West Indies culture and the focus on both, you know, education, but also the arts and music and and theater in some ways, right? Is, is that part of that early influence or were they strictly, you will go to school and you will go to the science school and you will be a doctor, Jody? No, that was it. That was it. Like that was you, you know, cause that the, you still do, but um, there used to be just three of them, three specialized high schools in New York city. And you had to take an exam and you had to pass it to get in. And my parents were like, you pass the exam or you figure out your own way in life. Like that. And they were serious about it. You know, my brother had gone there before me. You know, luckily I managed to pass the test because I really didn't know what I was going to do if I didn't. And um, but the funny part was years ago when I went, there wasn't really much of an arts focus at that school. And I don't I don't know that that's changed. It is really it's hardcore science and mathematics and English, and they are preparing you, right, to go out into the world to go to college. That was the entire point of it. You know, they had arts clubs and you had to take an art class, right, as a requirement, but we also had mechanical drawings, so you can learn how to draw architectural diagrams. Ridiculous. And, you know, mechanical stuff. And she, right? So we're okay. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And then, you know, instead of home economics, we had science technical laboratory where you had to build something by the end of this. So it was very much that. But We're going to have to translate home economics for the young listeners. Right. But it's coming back, though. That's the funny part. It's coming back. And um, celebrity chefs. Right. (laughs) Bobby Flay can make home economics look good. So exactly, exactly. Right. Um, so, you know, if the art side comes from within me, I mean, my mom, I will credit her. She always took me because my brother wasn't into it, but took me to Broadway plays and um, musicals. 
And her thing was and at ballet and, and uh, you know, Philharmonic and all that stuff we had to do. And it was because she wanted me to be cultured, not necessarily that she wanted me to choose it as a career. But, you know, there's a saying like, act like you've been somewhere. Right. And so that was very much the mind. You had to know your etiquette and you had to understand how this the world worked. But I got the bug and I knew I didn't want to be in front of the camera. You know, somehow I found out what a producer does. And I was like, oh, the person that puts it all together. Yeah, that's that's what I want to do. Back to the money. Right. Right. That, well, you know, and, and just figuring out problems, you know, because. We'll get to that, but that's really what a producer does a lot of the time is smooth out stuff. But I, you know, again, that's folly, though. In West Indian culture, you want to be in movies. That's pretty silly. Right. So I go to college, you know, and I said I'm going to be a lawyer. Where did you go to college, Jody? I went to American University in D.C. and um, perfect place for it. You know, and I realized I hated the political classes. They bored me to tears. That explains Hamilton, your reaction. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Listen, if nothing else, I am consistent. And so, you know, I was working full time actually in college, which I do not recommend to anybody if you can avoid it. And I had to switch majors because I was tired all the time and, you know, just trying to struggle through and it turned out my finance classes were actually the easiest classes for me. So that's kind of how I, you know, and I, again, growing up, I had been exposed because I would go to my father's job and, you know, he worked at a couple of different firms on Wall Street. And eventually he ended up um, being the lead financial analyst for the city of New York. So he was the one who invested all of, you know, the pension funds and everything like that into fixed income. So you have a pension, right, when you retire. And so I had grown up, you know, looking at Bloomberg terminals, like I, I, you know, I could read those since I was a teenager. And, you know, around that thing called Wall Street, you know, and so I, you know, graduated with my finance degree and decided I'm going back to New York to start a career. But how did a good New Yorker end up in Texas? Because I happen to know that you were in Texas in school. Well, quickly, I went to work for an investment bank and I knew I wanted to be a research analyst for the entertainment industry. And it happened that the investment bank I was working at had the lead investment analyst for the entertainment industry, Hal Vogel. And I worked my way up, got into investment banking division, and I went right up to Hal Vogel's office and I said, I want your job one day. What do I need to do? <laughs> you know, he was a super nice man. And he said, you're great. I can't do anything with you without an MBA. And I was like, okay, done. I'll go get one. I want to be you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so I, you know, applied and I got a fellowship to University of Texas at Austin. You know, it was like a couple of places I could have gone. And I was like, oh, but that's free and it's warm. And they're, you know, a top of 15 school. <laughs> Those were, you know, that was the thing. So I go to UT Austin and I go, you know, you have to do a summer internship between your first and second years. And um, I go to Chase 
to do my internship. And the first, um, you have to do two rounds within your summer internship, two different departments. So I go the first, my first department is franchise and trademark finance. So, right, if somebody wants to buy 15 Burger Kings, they go to this department at the bank and the bank arranges, right, syndicates this loan for your 15 Burger Kings. So that's really interesting because I didn't know anything about that world at all. So that was great learning about that. And then I realized I was thinking about what my second area was going to be. And they had put me in real estate. And as I'm in franchise and trademark finance, they said, I got to get serious about my life, you know. And I realized I hate sitting in front of spreadsheets all day. I despise it. And I realized, oh, I can't be a research analyst if I hate. There goes Olga's job. (laughs) You know, but I said to myself, what did I like about being a research analyst? Like, let me break this job down. So one side is the financial modeling, but the other side was going into companies and talking to them, right? Hearing their plans about what they're going to do for the future and how they're improving and, and then deciding, is that going to work? Is that realistic? Are you going to really hit revenue targets with this plan? Is the management capable of moving this company to the future, right? I love that piece of it. That's what I wanted to do. And so I was looking through the internet on Chase, and there's a management consulting department in Chase. So what? That's amazing. So who's the head of management? Anita Ward is the head of, right, the senior vice president over. I said, okay, great. I start calling you and I'm leaving messages, nothing. I don't get any call back. I'm leaving messages and I'm talking to your assistant. And I'm like, well, I left her a couple of messages. And then I finally said, well, what time in the morning do you guys get in? What time is she usually in? They said, oh, 7.30. I said, great. And I put on my best suit and my cufflinks. And I sat in, you had a little reception area with a couch. And I was sitting in the reception area and you walk in with a coffee. I'll never forget, you walk in with your coffee. And you're like, hi, you know, who are you? I'm like, hi, I'm Jody. I've been calling you and leaving messages. So I figured I'd just stop by since I hadn't heard from you, you know. And, and yeah. Awesome. <laughs> yeah. You have coffee. Come on. <laughs> right. And, and, you know, it's 730 in the morning. It's a total ambush. No apologies. Like, I am here. I'm getting this meeting with you. You are at least going to meet me. Tell me to my face. Like, you are not. <laughs> and sure enough, and you were like, okay, that's, you're crazy. Come on, let's go. And, you know, you switched my, you know, you got my internship switched. And I came to work with you. And, like, the rest is history. You know, because that's what I wanted to do. It's so crazy because I think back on, you know, your just your background in terms of being a consultant. And you said earlier, being a producer is so much problem solving, right? So that consulting experience, whether we were doing it in banking or for a client later on in our careers, is really producing the business. So in many ways, it's masterminding. How does the business operate? What needs to change? What is the financial infrastructure? But I happen to know a few really great stories about you as a consultant. And I'm thinking we could share a couple, but 
let's do one that's just a little crazy. Let's let's talk about your experience as a consultant in Japan. And then maybe we'll do the one where it's sort of Jody's Jerry Maguire moment so we can contrast them. But I think that they'll help set the stage for what, you know, what happens in a consulting world and how do you solve those problems? And plus, they're just great fun stories to talk about. So let's go to actually, this is incredible timing, right? We're about to, you know, acknowledge the 2001, 9-11, 2001. And this was, I think, in 2001 when you were in Japan, just before 9-11. So why don't you tell everybody, how did you end up in Japan and what was the construct and why was it so crazy? It was, it was, it was just such a fantastic experience. Anybody who hasn't been there, I highly suggest putting it on your bucket list. It is an amazing country, but I was working um, as a consultant. I had just rolled off of a project and I had six weeks, I think, of vacation saved up. And I was going to take, you know, part of the summer off and travel and do stuff. And we had already started sort of the, sowing the seeds of an entertainment practice within the consulting uh, firm. And so I really wanted to come out to L.A. and kind of scout out, you know, what's going on out here? Can we, you know, generate business um, for Chicago? And there was a company, NEC, who was going to buy the consulting firm I worked for. And they wanted to start replicating the services we delivered in the States in Japan. And so they needed a person to go and, you know, lead the project and also deliver the business strategy side of the offerings. Now they go through the whole company, come to me and I'm like, I really want to go work in Asia. I need some time off. Like I'm, you know, I'm burnt. I need to take some time off. And they go around the company, you know, at the same level I'm at. And they said, no one else can do it. We have to start this project next week. You have to go. You're only going to be there a week and a half. You're going to kick off the project with the client, get the team together, and then the person is going to come and relieve you in a week and a half. I say, okay, you know, I'll go. This is going to be great to, you know, go work in Japan and really, you know, see what that business culture is like. I'm going to be there a week and a half. Somebody's going to come and rescue me. I'm going to go on vacation. It's going to be great. Week and a half later, we go, we kick off the project and no one's coming to relieve you. No one's, you're going to have to stay and act as client partner and you're going to have to deliver business strategy. And by the way, you're going to have to hold that minimal team together. And you speak Japanese. Right. <laughs> right. You, had, you couldn't even read the signs to the streets. No, I couldn't. And that will come into play later, actually. And so, yeah. So, you know, and the two people on the team that they sent with me, they hate each other. So it's managing that human drama going on behind the scenes, managing right to it's trying to teach, although I will say the people that they gave us from NEC their English was incredible, right? And so it was, there were just a few times that you were like, you know, they were incredible. So trying to teach them how to deliver the services, what we look for, 
what we're, you know, when a client is going, you know, that sort of thing, how we handle these different situations and how we create presentations for the client that's really going to move them was, you know, just interesting. And then we would actually interact with their clients in the field sometimes, you know. And so we had, a, you know, was up all day and working all day. And then our support staff was all the way in New York City. So you're working all day, but all of the research and everything else, because this is, you know, 20 years ago that you've requested has to come from the New York office. So you're up all night talking in the New York office, trying to say, I need X, Y. So it was just, it was a crazy situation. Fast forward, I'm there for a couple of months and it comes down that I actually got called to a dinner which um, in Japanese business culture um, is very important. I am the one woman at sort of the head of the table, but I have Japanese businessmen all around in like a U-shape, all looking at me from NEC because it turns out the project was a test case because there was some debate within the Japanese company if they were in fact going to buy going to buy our company. So they, no pressure. <laughs> no pressure. So I am at this dinner that I don't realize is right going to be and they grill me with questions. You know, in terms of if you were in our place would you buy why you know, what do you think the firm has to offer? And I I have two factions at this dinner because there were some people who were really against the investment. And I've got a hold that it's crazy. So, you know, we go for months and you know, I have I finally get to the end and they say, look, we're gonna make this investment and we want you to commit to staying here a year. And I said, you're gonna have to give me you know, Rosetta Stone lessons. <laughs> Seriously. So I can understand the language at a kindergarten level, right? Just at a basic. And they, you know, again, I've been picking up phrases and different things here and there, but I was like, not only can I not understand what people are saying in the meetings, I have to rely on translators and stuff in our in our working group. But when I'm out in the world, I, I don't know what's going on. I, there were very few signs with Roman letters or numerals anywhere. And so, you know, you really had to, yeah, you, you really had to kind of know where you were going before you left the house, before I left the hotel, how many train stops is that away? Like what? And there was one time that really solidified my thinking. Um, I was on the train going to like the, one of the few places I could get to on my own and I'm on the train and we're all sitting there and an announcement comes over the, the speaker and everybody gets up and walks out of the train. And except for me, I'm sitting there and I'm like, oh, I guess I have to get off this train. Right. And it really hit home. Like I am in another country. I don't speak that they could have said a bomb is on the train and I would have no idea. And that really made me double down and say, look, I need to get to at least I need to be able to take care of myself if you want me to live here for a year. And um, they said, no, my firm said, no, we're not, we're not going to pay for that for you. And I said, okay, 
I have to come home and um, I really want to come home and somebody else needs to come and replace me because I don't want to commit to a year. And uh, my supervisor at the time, he said, he wrote me back an email and he said, I can't protect you if you come home. You, you know, you know what this could mean. And, you know, uh, uh, you really have to sit down. It's one of those moments in life where you're like, what is my purpose? What am I thinking? Uh, and how will this change my life? Right. Will this change the complete trajectory, you know, and am I okay with that? And am I okay with literally giving my entire life over to this job? Right. Because it's not like you're going out and you're meeting people and you are working 16 hours a day proper. And, you know, so I, um, I said, no, I'm, I'm, I'll take my chances. I'm coming home. And um, they sent two people to replace me, which I thought was hilarious, you know, and um, the guy who replaced my part of my dues as client partner, he comes to me one night, he's just been there for a week, a couple of days, a week, maybe. And he's like, I just don't know how you've done this. And he's like, I don't know if I'm going to make it for a year. He said, you'll make it. You know, you'll make it. Once you get acclimated, you'll make it. But, you know, and it was one of those things. And I came home uh, right after Labor Day. So I'd been there for like three and three months, three and a half months. And um, I my sleep schedule is still messed up you know, because of the time change. And I think we had an early conference call that day. So I was up early working in Chicago and the today show is on in the background and I'm just working away. And I look up and a plane has flown into the world trade center. I was like, wow, you know, growing up in New York, you visualize it working down on wall street, you know, you visualize them thinking, Oh man, you know, there's, some small pilot that has lost his way and crashed into the towers. Wow, that's crazy. And I'm working and watching. And then a second plane. I was actually looking at the TV when the second plane went in. And I just panicked. I mean, it was just, you knew what was happening, you know, and living in downtown Chicago, you know, I'm on the 36th floor, and I'm opening all the windows because I'm looking at the Sears Tower over here and the John Hancock Tower over here. You know, I'm looking at, all, you know, and then my sister-in-law was in the Army. And so she worked out of the Pentagon. And so it was just. It was a day. It was. Yeah. So it's. Yeah. My office at Chase was 55 walls and right. it was a day. You know, Jody, before we do your Jerry Maguire thing, let's jump over a bit to, I know that you left, you finally did sort of hit your purpose and I know you came home. And I think the first one that really drove your purpose was when you joined the Discovery Channel, maybe. And I think that was your first nomination for a daytime Emmy. But I mean, I would love to know you know, some of the magic that happens when you're making a series for the Discovery Channel, because in many ways, this starts to, uh, I mean, it really does solidify your purpose. And of course, I'm you know, just fascinated with the entertainment and movie industry anyway. But could you share a bit about what you were doing and what was it like to make a series there? And congrats on the nomination, by the way. But thanks. thanks. You know, it was it was interesting because 
I actually didn't create the show. So there were two people who had created the show already, and they had this vision for an updated Barney for kids, you know, something that was cooler and that sort of thing and brought in this hip hop culture, just gave, you know, this infusion to uh, kids live action TV because everything before them was Barney and Teletubby and Blue's Clues and right what happens if you blow up that entire sensibility and you meet the kids where they are? The kids are listening to hip hop, right? They're dancing to the videos. They're doing, what if you bring it to that? So they had created this show and I, a friend of mine actually heard that they were looking for writers. That's how I got to the show. And, and they said, Oh, you should submit something. And I was like, yeah, okay. You know? So I literally will laugh. That was literally the first full-length TV script I ever wrote. Yeah. And so, you know, they have a screenwriting software, Final Draft, that everybody, I didn't have Final Draft and I didn't have time to get it. So I literally looked up what are the different margin sizes for the different elements and, and I recreated a script on Microsoft Word. Wow. It was the first full-length thing I ever wrote. And they called me in and, you know, to make sure you're not crazy, because that's one of the things, right? You want to make sure that you can actually work with people. And they offered me the supervising producer position. I didn't, you know, I was like, oh, okay. Because they were like, you, uh, of what we've read, you get the voice of what we're going for, essentially. So that's kind of how I got I got to the show and working with Discovery was great because they were pretty good about leaving us alone. Like in terms of, you know, when you work with a network, they have notes on everything, (laughs) everything from the casting to, you know, the scripts to the props, sometimes the set, everything. And because it's a kid's show, it's even more, you know, there are more eyes looking at it and everybody's looking at it harder. And so given that, the number of notes that kind of came back from Discovery were really manageable. I was actually pretty proud of, of that myself because, you know, supervising producers, all the scripts have to go through me, right? And so I write some and then there are other writers, you know, who write scripts and, you know, I've got to come up. Sometimes you have to rework an outline and give it to a writer and say, here, just write this, you know, and and send it back or this doesn't work. So to have everything pass through your hands and then get to the network and they don't have that much to say. I mean, right, that's great. Yeah, that's great. And, um, it, you know, it, it was a proud moment. It was a proud moment because that spec script I wrote for 50 bucks, they actually ended up using it. They actually ended up produ- producing it. And it was, you know, so that was on my Microsoft Word. <laughs> <laughs> so I love to hear your story. I, I love the, you know, $50 piece. But I'm looking now at an industry that, in my opinion, has, you know, diversity, equity, and inclusion issues. And when I look at the data, and particularly in the the animation world, right, people of color, 
they and across the entire special effects, post-production, cinematography, editing, all of that, it's less than 50% representation. And then I say, okay, well, what about just basic film? Forget animation, because maybe that's technology and there's a barrier or something, right? But film leads, 27.6%. Film directors, 15%. Uh, writers, 13 or 14%, right? And then you look at this overall representation and people of color only represent about 30% in the entire industry. And then as women, you know, break down who's running these companies, right? It's 91% white males driving this industry all the way down to unit heads, Jody. And and I think to myself, here's this really exciting stuff that you were doing 20 years ago. And it seems to me like there's this giant opportunity for change. But, you know, I'm looking at it from the high level data perspective. And I have a kid in entertainment and a nephew in entertainment. And they're both kids of color, right? But is this the time? What are you seeing on the ground level? Is there an opportunity for change? Did 2020 affect it or did it make it in some ways worse? So, uh, you know, you see it day to day. How, what can we be doing around inclusion? I think it's gotten exponentially better since I started in entertainment. You know, just the number of faces you see on the screen has exploded and um, which is great. I know, you know, you'll hear grumblings um, from people, you know, that there are too many people of color being cast, which I think is hilarious. But, you know, you have to point out that most of the people of color being cast aren't being cast as the leads, right? So they're filling out all those second, third, fourth, fifth positions, whereas, you know, the entire cast would be white. And um, I think, you know, you see the improvement because so many more people that I am in contact with are working and they're working just a lot more. And whereas it used to be this rarefied air where you'd see so-and-so got a job or so-and-so got a job, a lot more people are working. So there has been a lot of improvement in that area. I think the thing that used to frustrate me and I'd like to see more of is there used to be, if there was a show with Black people in it, it was one story. It was drugs. It was, you know, some kind of poverty story, you know, poverty porn, as they call it. And I am heartened to see so many more different stories coming to the screen, you know. And um, I think projects like Moonlight you know, it, which was so different, you, you know, would you have seen that made 20 years ago? Absolutely not. Right. And, you know, things like Black Panther, again, you know, the studio is seen as taking a gamble on this thing that er- ends up earning billions of dollars. And it's projects like that. Like, yes, when you do it correctly <laughs> and you spend the proper money on it and you take the time, yes, it will. These projects, Will make will make you billions of dollars. So, seeing a lot of improvement um, in that regard, it's still uh, it can still be a challenge to get a project off the ground. But 
there are a lot more avenues. A lot more people are willing to meet, at least, and entertain the idea of a Black creator and or a project that has a Black lead in it. At least you're not being shut down. Like, we don't make Black films. Like, that's the kind of stuff I would hear 20 years ago. We don't we don't make Black films. Sorry, you know, nothing against the Black. We just don't make films. And so... Yeah, it, it's improving. Let's see how long it lasts. You know, much like Wall Street, Hollywood, the color is green. So if you continue to see these projects make money, draw in viewers, you know, in terms of the streaming services, keep their subscriber numbers high. If we continue to see these projects with people of color to that end, they'll keep making them. So if you've Put that to the other side of the equation and you look at the individual. I look at so many entertainers who struggle with finances too. So they fame and fortune don't guarantee financial success. (laughs) Um, And so, and I know there's no longer artist development in the traditional sense, but don't the studios and maybe at some level, the producers, but shouldn't they be concerned with the financial health of these people as well? So I think about the actors and the writers and, you know, thank God I didn't grow up a wealthy kid or exposed to anything related to financial literacy. Uh, and But I'm taking the time with Tommy to say, you know, here are the things that you need to do differently. But shouldn't the studios, if if you really want to make the shift, uh, many of the actors and writers who are coming to the table are coming from a position of not having been exposed to any level of security, whether that's physical health, nutritional health, mental health, financial health. And so how do you build this responsible, uh, sustainable environment to your point that let's see how long it will last. Well, what should we be doing? Uh, I saw something in in some of our research that said, if you're in a position where you're under financial stress, which many entertainers are, sadly, that you're not more likely to be suffering from anxiety and depression. So now I'm thinking, well, gosh, maybe a lot of what we see manifesting in anxiety and impression and the industry itself, maybe some roots of that are around just basic, you know, understanding of finances. Like, did I just get my first big check and buy myself an airplane? Right. Uh, And so, and I don't fly. I'm not your brother. (laughs) And, And so I'm wondering, you've been in financial services all your life. And you talk about angel investors. Shouldn't there be some sort of angel investor who comes in and says, hey, let me invest in you as an individual. Let me help you. What's that responsibility to provide that basic financial literacy and conversations and without an A&R arm anymore? How does that happen? I feel like there's this vacuum somewhere, or is it like mentors like you who come along and go, all right, honey, let me help you. Right, right. Well, you know, here's the thing. It's so complicated because the studio, let's say, let's put the studio at the top level, right? So the studio can be separated from the project because, right, they'll say, well, we'll give you the money or we'll distribute your project. You go finish it and bring it back to us and we'll make sure it gets into theaters, right? And so they're so separated from the artist that, Uh, They can't feel any responsibility, right? Until the artist is so big 
that they're a household name, right? So that takes the studio kind of out of the equation. Then the producers are hiring the artists for projects. So as much as they, you know, care about that person, they care about the performance, right? So maybe that mental and financial health while that person is working on this project is super important, but you may work for a producer and produce the greatest movie of all time and never work with them again, never talk to them. So that kind of leaves the artists to their own devices. And that's why that's part of the reason, right? You hear all these kind of sad horror stories about people going broke. The other thing is that because of the economics of Hollywood, when you're first starting out, you know, when you're maybe a day player, you're making a hundred bucks a day, maybe. And your rent is expensive here. And so, and there are all these other costs that people don't realize, you know, if you're a woman, especially you're getting your hair done or you're getting it colored and you're getting facials and nails and all of that stuff, because, you know, you have to look a certain way when you go to audition. People don't realize all that costs money, right? And then, um, you know, the other economics of it are I can make a movie today and then not work for six months. So that sort of financial insecurity, people aren't taught to deal with, right? They're, they're caught up in the art of it. And, you know, whereas I'm on the other side, I'm very much the business side of it. Like, what is this? And to your point, you know, I've talked to people that I've met that are, you know, actors and, you know, musicians and stuff out here that says, look, how are you investing for your future? Do you even know about the stock market? Let me let me give you some tips or introduce you to trading so that when you're not working, right, you can you can be trading in the market in a very sort of simple, rudimentary way that, you know, will help you build up a bigger base, you know, of savings rather than you just putting it in the bank and then waiting to drain it when you're not working. Because you'll see a lot of that cycle. I feel like this could become my passion project. And in a minute, I want to talk about yours. But I think the idea of gathering together fintechs in a studio and maybe the manage, manager infrastructure or the lawyer infrastructure or basic financial literacy. I remember when when my son Tommy first started, he wasn't 18 and they made me set up a trust account. I can't remember the name of it. It's a, called a Hoogan account. Yes. And maybe there's the adult equivalent, but it we work with a Motley Fool and Salary Finance and Chase or whomever, and we figure out what's that Coogan account for adults. And maybe I could personally, because it's very close to me, get very passionate around how do you create an ESG framework for the entertainment industry? Because we are going to burn through people with financial stress and it's not fair. And our, you're you're an anomaly, Jody. You know how much I love you. But our, most artists have no idea about the other side of their brain. And they and they will tell you they don't want to. They don't want to know. So then they then they have to trust a manager. Go back to your Japan example. Finance yeah. has its own language and its own sets of symbols that if 
you don't understand it, you're in trouble, right? If you, if you ever look at a Bloomberg terminal, that will look like complete nonsense. It will look like the matrix, you know, with the numbers going down. And that's what if you don't know what you're looking at. Yeah. So now you're expecting somebody who just came off the set of Black Panther to suddenly figure out, you know, should I be buying Ethereum? Right. It doesn't work that way. Or how to buy Ethereum. Right. What is even Ethereum? What the heck is a digital currency? Right. And so I'm thinking maybe I'm going to ask you, let's let's not let this part go, because I think particularly I'm in Atlanta, which is a giant entertainment capital now. And you're in LA and we both come from that financial services. And these days I'm with a really cool, nimble tech company that could address some of these needs. But if we aligned it up with, you know, the studio and lined it up with Motley Fool, maybe, or aligned it up with people who care, there may be a way to bring a collaboration to actually support the industry. So I'm going to say, put that challenge out there. Yeah, and don't forget the guilds. Listen, the Actors Guild, those are that's where you're going to feel the heart of Hollywood, right? Those are people that, that care for the artists, that care for the creators. And, I, you know, the, it's a great idea because, you know, especially people come out here so young, right? They come out here 18, 21, and they're... You know, they're like, this is great eating peanut butter and jelly and sleeping on somebody's couch for my art is noble. You know, at 35, that's not noble. It's sleeping on somebody's couch. We started off the conversation talking about Lin-Manuel Miranda. Yes. And I will tell you that cast Hamilton leaned in in all of 2020. I'm, I don't know how much I'm allowed to disclose, but basically helped financially, even though they weren't working. Now, uh, there are very few other that others that I'm aware of that did this, but Manuel leaned in and said, we're a family. This is how families take care of each other. And so, but even then, these young people at 22 and 23 were out trying to find other jobs to even supplement that because they're living in LA. Now, I'm going to, while we have gone long, I'm so excited. I love talking to you. But um, let's end with a quick description. We've talked about my passion project and where I think we could lean in. What's your passion project? Because I think yours is super cool. Yeah. I, um, you know, when I, first what came home from college uh one of the people that was my mentor you know working on wall street was a woman named benita pierce and she and my father were friends and they you know would do trades together and stuff but she was actually the first black woman in institutional trading on wall street in 1974 and, and she ended up, you know, having her own firm um, in fixed income securities and bonds and, you know, all sorts of corporate bonds and things like that. And I have ever since I've known her story and especially since I, you know, started down the Hollywood writing, producing it, I said, this has got to get out there. This is one of those stories that people should know about. People, you know, because now, right, there are black people on Wall Street. There still are not a lot, relatively speaking. But to go back and to be a woman at Chase, I remember even when I went to work to uh, Chase, how many years later, I was getting so I would get 
looked at askance because I was wearing a pantsuit and somebody somebody took it upon themselves to say to me, look, you know, when I started here, we could not wear pants on the trading floor. I got a dress code when I first started in banking. <laughs> I dropped it off on my desk, you know, because I rode up the elevator with the head of HR and he was not happy with what I was wearing. It was the longest 60 story flight of my life or whatever elevator ride of my life. So I'm, nobody can, you know, today, young women, Women would be like, are you crazy? You got stories, right? But I remember that within an hour, the dress code was dropped on my desk. Yeah. Yeah. And so can you, and so, right. And this is in 1974. Can you imagine what the went through on that, on the trading floor, right? Did she have, did she have a seat? She did not. The first day they went, it was, um, I think there was a two other, there were two other women and a, a couple of guys in this internship program, even though she already had her MBA um, from NYU, there, no seats, no seat. And she literally by the second through second day, she was like, I'm sitting down. And so she grabbed a seat and grabbed the phones and figured out how it all worked and just has had this really storied, you know, career, really interesting career, you know, where she ended up, again, owning her own firm and actually had a seat on the board of the NASDAQ Stock Exchange. And it's just one of those stories, not only being a woman in the 70s, in the highest levels of finance, but being Black also. And, you know, her story talking about, you know, what's instilled in her and all that stuff. She She's a fascinating person to talk to. If you ever get a chance, I'll definitely have to hook you guys up because, you know, hearing her backstory growing up in Massachusetts and getting that sense of self, like, where does that come from when you're definitely one of the few Black people in Cape Cod, right, in the 50s and 60s sort of thing. Where does that confidence come from? Where does that sense of self that says, I'm walking onto the trading floor and chase and it's home. And, you know, there's nothing that's going to stop me from whatever I want to do. So that's really my passion project is to get stories like that onto the screen because women were there at 74, right? Black people were there in the 70s. And uh, it should be acknowledged and celebrated. It's, you know, there's so many, call it a diaspora but within the diaspora, there's a diaspora of stories. And, you know, so it's my passion to get that one to the screen in some form or fashion. I love that. So we have some big shoes to fill here, Jody. but let's make that movie. And, you know, in so many ways, Benita set that bar high for us. So I, I would love to talk to her and I love your stories. So, you know, thank you so much for sharing Benita's story and your story and, Thank you for being so passionate and driving with purpose and being my friend and for everything you do. I, I've really enjoyed our conversation today. So thank Yeah, this has been great. This has been wonderful. I'll tell you the Jerry Maguire story another time. <laughs> I was going to say, I'm, I think I can do a series of episodes just on Jody's stories and we'll bring in your guests. So it will be us and Benita and us and Burger King and Diageo. And we'll save that for later. So 
I hope all of you enjoyed our show today from Hollywood again with um, Jody Smith. Thanks for joining us, everyone. And until next time, just keep working on well-being. Thanks. Thanks for joining us for today's episode of Working on Wellbeing, brought to you by Salary Finance. I'm Anita Ward. At Salary Finance, our mission is to improve the financial health of working Americans by providing access to socially responsible financial products in the workplace. You can learn more about how you can partner with us to help improve your employees' financial well-being at salaryfinance.com. Don't forget to subscribe or follow so you don't miss an episode.